The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Ooh, shiny. Welcome to Generations Geek, a family-friendly celebration of geekdom by a father-daughter crime-fighting duo. I'm Scott Pearson, and this is my daughter, Greta Von Horn of Africa. Hello. And we are two generations of geek. This is episode one, Rise of the Planet of the Geeks, and we'll be introducing ourselves, talking about cool movie previews, seeing Raiders of the Lost Ark on the big screen, and binging on Star Trek. Since this is our first episode, we're going to introduce ourselves. I am Scott Pearson, as I said before. I've had three Star Trek short stories and one Star Trek novella published by Simon & Schuster. Beyond that, I've had a handful of sci-fi stories and a couple of mystery stories anthologized, as well as some poems, reviews, and Star Trek articles published in various magazines and regional anthologies. I have a day job as a history editor, which has allowed me to work with a lot of writers, from astronauts to World War II veterans to a stealth fighter pilot. I'm joined, as always, by my daughter, Greta. Obviously, my real name isn't Greta Von Horn of Africa. I've just started the ninth grade. I go to a small Montessori high school here in the Twin Cities. I obviously don't have a career yet, but I like to write like my dad, and I like to work with animals. Most of my writing right now is dominated by fan fiction, but I do have a few ideas of my own, so I'm branching out. Are you branching out beyond genre-related stuff at all? Not really. I'm still mostly a geeky writer. I think my idea that's progressed most is a dystopian novella that involves dinosaurs. We love dystopias and we love dinosaurs. (laughs) Maybe it's not a good thing to say we love dystopias, but we do love dinosaurs. A quick comment on the title of our show, Generations Geek. I'm a first-generation geek. Neither of my parents had a particular interest in science fiction or fantasy. So I became a geek primarily on my own, just uh, discovering Star Trek reruns and uh, books, that sort of thing. I am a second-generation geek because, obviously, my dad is quite the geek himself. And he really introduced me to it. And now we really feed each other stuff. Uh, Greta will find something, I'll find something. you got to see this, you got to check this out. And it's really become a, a team effort here. So... That's what makes us Generations Geek. Raiders of the Lost Ark came out in 1981. That is 31 years ago. I'll just go ahead and do the math for you right here. It was recently re-released. So Greta and I rushed off to the theater playing the soundtrack as we went. See it on the big screen. It was a great experience. The showing was just as exciting because of the previews as uh, the, the, the main event. So I think first we'll just talk a little bit about all the fabulous trailers we saw for new movies. First up, The Hobbit. Now, I uh, have been a little on the fence about The Hobbit being three films, but seeing this preview for the first one, both, uh, both of us were, uh, were blown away. It looks fabulous. In fact, we both had kind of emotional reactions. Yeah, I teared up when they had the dwarves sing over the Misty Mountains. It was really cool. It was very moving. And and at least in this preview, uh, it looked to me like Jackson has done a good job of capturing both the more sort of uh, childlike silliness of the novel while also capturing some of the more emotionally serious uh, aspects of the story. 
I think the challenge for Peter is going to be trying to blend this movie with The Lord of the Rings because The Hobbit was written as a children's novel and The Lord of the Rings is an adult novel. And so the tone between the two pieces is uh, substantially different. But with these films, I think that Peter Jackson is really making another adult film that has to blend in with The Lord of the Rings films. And it's going to be a challenge, and I, th this is part of my concern, because I think that sometimes Peter goes a little over the top with things, and I often have concerns about his style of humor, which I think wouldn't uh, blend with uh, Tolkien's own style of humor. Peter Jackson gets a little bit more sort of uh, rudely funny, where Tolkien had more of a sort of quiet comedy. but. This preview looked stunning. Another preview that came up was Skyfall, and it looked incredibly action-packed, but also lent a seriousness to it by the performance of Daniel Craig as Bond that keeps it from being sort of a cartoony film. Greta, have you seen any James Bond films that can't remember? I watched one when I was at one of my friends' houses for, like, this big sleepover. We were going to watch The Birds when we decided on James Bond, and it ended up being really awesome. And do you remember which one that was? Was it... It was Daniel Craig, though. It was one of the new ones. I'm I'm really not entirely sure. I think it was in, like, fourth or fifth grade, but there was this great fight scene on top of this massive crane, like, over the ocean, and it was just so perfectly blue. Was that part of... What do they call that... Uh... See, the kids today know this word, and I always forget it. What do they call it when, when the people that are running and jumping all fancy? Parkour. There you go. Wasn't there a parkour chase scene that led up Yeah, to yeah. That? Yes, that was Casino Royale, the first Daniel Craig film that opened with that fabulous uh, chase scene. And the, the Skyball preview makes it look uh, stunning. My, my favorite bit, a train sort of gets ripped open and Bond sort of leaps in as the, the train is falling apart and he lands in the aisle and as he's walking up the aisle and you can see the open hole of the train behind him where the thing the cars come apart and he sort of takes a moment to straighten his, his the cuffs of his shirt as he walks forward. It's a, a great little scene. Pretty boss. Yes, and so, so uh, both of us are, are eager to see that one. So next up was Frankenweenie. Now this actually, Tim Burton, the uh, once fabulous Tim Burton, whose films haven't really interested me lately, uh, back in 1984, I think was when it was first released, he did a short film about a boy who brings his dead dog back to life, a la Frankenstein. And he has now turned this into a feature-length film that appeals to me much more than his last couple films have I didn't uh, I don't think I've seen even Burton's last couple of films and uh, I thought it looked uh, interesting and and funny and to me it kind of looked like a return to form but we shall see did you want to see that one eh, I don't know why not but it just didn't really it didn't, it didn't eh. grab you and I'm wondering if for me part of it is sort of the, the nostalgia of it it's in black and white I don't know uh, there was another preview that caught me off guard the life of Pi. Oh. Yeah. I recognize the title. I was familiar that there had been a very, very popular book by that name, but I never read the book. I didn't know anything about 
what the book was about. So when I saw the preview, I was really kind of blown away at how just sort of surreal and magical and interesting it looked. Yeah, until I saw the preview, I had no idea what the book was about. Like my math teacher had done something about it, but I thought it was just like pi, like literally the number. But I started reading it after seeing the preview and it's actually really good and I'm only on page 33. So. Oh, you, you started the book? I did. It's uh-huh. It's very good. I'm going to have to read it because I I can tell it's going to be like my new favorite. It certainly looks interesting. And just one thing that struck me about it is it looks very Eastern in traditions as opposed to Western. Western films, you know, primarily American films, they're much more realistic. Where in this film, when you see a boy trapped on a lifeboat with a tiger... You know, it's it's very sort of over-the-top, magical realism kind of stuff. Yeah, the life of Pi is a fable of sorts, really. It's supposed to be a family fleeing the country after some sort of war starts, and they own a zoo. So they bring all these animals onto a giant boat, and the ship sinks, and he's stuck on a lifeboat. In the preview, it looks like just a tiger, but... My mom, who has read the book, told me it was like a couple other animals as well. I don't know if they'll, that they'll include that in the movie. Yeah, maybe they simplified it by uh, leaving some animals out. I don't know. But it's important. Yeah, I, I like that you bring up that it's a fable. I think that fable kind of movies generally don't do well in the United States because we expect a film that's a little bit more realistic. I mean, e- even you know, science fiction films have their own kind of realism to them, their own rules. One movie that pops into my mind... One of my favorite films is Joe versus the Volcano. <laughs> and I think it's just a marvelous film, but it really is a fable. And in fact, the movie starts out with a title card that says, Once Upon a Time, there was a man named Joe or something like that. But it's made clear right from the beginning that this isn't going to be a movie that is really in the real world in some way. And so it's the kind of thing where then you should be more open to things happening that are very unlikely or faintly ridiculous but you're willing to suspend your disbelief because it's awesome because it's awesome exactly if the filmmaker has succeeded in their awesomeness you're ready to let just about anything happen the other preview well it wasn't really a full preview but it was mentioned was that et is going to get a re-release on the big screen we will be going and i will buy reese's pieces there we go. So we're planning ahead for the candy purchases on that one. <laughs> and E.T. came out in 1982, I believe. So this is a 30-year-old movie. I really hope they keep bringing these movies back because it would, it would be amazing if they kept doing Indiana Jones or did more movies from that era because I would just be overjoyed. Yeah, seeing a film on the big screen is obviously a um, entirely different experience. And the uh, technology that has allowed sort of home theaters and stuff, uh, much bigger screen TVs and and proper theatrical aspect ratio images and surround sound, obviously the home experience is getting better and better. But uh, seeing these things on the big screen, it's, uh, it's just marvelous to see them as they were originally intended. And that wraps up the previews. And so at this point, we were finally at the main event, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Throughout the entirety of Raiders being on the big screen, I was basically just staring in awe between the enormous movie theater screen and the surround sound and everything. It was just amazing. Because this was Greta's first time seeing it on the big screen. Actually, we haven't been to... What what was the last movie we went to before this? 
been a while since we've been to a movie I don't even in remember the theater. what movie we went to. Sadly, we have a tendency to uh, to not go to actual theaters. Part of that's because I'm uh, a cranky old man doing the why don't these people be quiet during the movie kind of thing. And I think the last one we wanted to go do was Avengers. We never ended up seeing that either, and now we're going to watch like and Iron Man and Iron Man 2 and everything else before we watch that. We have to so. get caught up because... Yeah. I yes. haven't been keeping up on my superhero films. I mean, films I've only seen reason. the beginning of Iron Man. Well, and there are also some, uh, there's a few scenes in there that are a little on the iffy side. Here at Generations Geek, we try to maintain a family friendliness. And, uh, I, you know, it's it's PG-13, so not. Uh, it's obviously up to the, the parents out there to decide when their kids are going to see some of the more uh, risque elements and some of the more violent elements that are in superhero films. But uh, getting back to Raiders... I, of course, have seen it multiple times on the big screen in its original release, and I'm sure it must have had some re-releases back in the day that I also saw, but uh, it's been, you know, probably still decades since I saw it on the big screen. And it really was a, a sort of a, a revelation to see it back up there and see all the little details, all the uh, funny and creepy little uh, shots of flies crawling on people <laughs> that you miss when you're watching it on the TV since they're out in the desert and the heat and there's flies. I do have one sort of picky technical point to make, and that is I'd heard a lot beforehand about how stunning the image looked. I even read an interview with Spielberg, who was talking about how great it looked. And in fact, I thought it actually looked quite grainy in spots, and it was kind of uh, exaggerated by the fact that you'd just seen all these previews for brand new movies that are made in you know perfect pristine yeah that was conditions. the only part that that really bugged me was that right before the movie it's like all these stuff is crystal clear and then of yeah. course i was expecting the movie to be a little bit grainy because i mean it's old and what are you gonna do i think it was a lot better than it could have been really yeah it still was fabulous to see but it was kind of jarring when you went from those previews to the opening scenes and the opening scenes of course out in the jungle some of those shots were the most challenging when originally filmed, and so there's some of the grainiest scenes in the movie. It looked some of it looked a lot better when it was a little bit more well into the movie when stuff was yeah. better lit and like. Well, the, I think you know a big difference was be, the the difference between the scenes that were shot uh, in studio and the scenes that were shot on location. And those shots that were done on a set were very clear, and those shots that were done on location in uh, under challenging conditions of heat and humidity and all that sort of stuff those were a little bit grainy and those things uh, showed up but it's kind of a picky point because a well-made film like that i mean it, it carries you along and you don't find yourself thinking about those little things it's similar to i can watch a very old you know black and white movie or whatever films that really show their age from a technical standpoint and I don't find that that really bothers me during the film. Because me you're, neither. You're carried along by the story. A good story. Yeah, and really, I mean, especially when you're watching, say, the original series. The, the original series? Of Star Trek. Star Trek, okay. Where the special effects aren't as good as we have now, but they were the best at the time. It really annoys me when people can't watch movies because they're in black and white. That's like half my friends, and I just get, like, uncontrollably annoyed at them. Yes, that is a major pet peeve of mine as well, that that uh, a lot of contemporary audiences don't uh, have an appreciation for very well-crafted films that just happen to have been made uh, long enough ago that the special effects are 
primitive by today's standards. But again, to me, it's all about the quality of the story and and a well-made film, a well-crafted film with great characters and a great story. If you can't suspend your disbelief and look past uh, a little bit more rudimentary special effects, uh, it's it's really too bad because you're losing out on a lot of uh, amazingly lot well-made of movies. Stuff. A lot of stuff that, you know, in many cases has much better characters and much better story than now because I think now there's a reliance on the special effects. It's so easy to do some big, huge, over-the-top action sequence that the uh, importance of the overall story structure and the characters gets lost in all the uh, CGI. But we digress a little bit. Let's get back to Raiders. What to you was the biggest difference seeing it on the big screen? Or was there something that really... It was just awesome on a giant screen with full surround sound. It's a big story with uh, big location shots. And so when you get to see those big locations, like the big uh, big, uh, dig scene, when you get to see that on the big screen, it really gives you a sense of scope in the film that you might uh, miss out on on the uh, small screen. Another part of the fun of the entire experience was actually kind of indirectly related to the movie. Greta went not entirely in costume, but tell the good folks what you wore. (laughs) Yeah, when I heard we were going, we have a fedora that is very much like Indy's. And even though I had lost my old cowboy boots and khakis and white collared shirt that I used to wear um, due to growing, I (laughs) have a white tank top and sort of, vintage brown shoes so i wore those and then just my new jeans she put together a little ensemble yeah, in, had, in honor yeah then of, i had a pair uh, of dark jeans on indie and then there was also a uh, special surprise when we got to the theater when we bought the tickets then the ticket guy said and do you want one or two posters because basically for every ticket sold you got a poster yeah my dad just kind of went what <laughs> yeah it was one of those things that I didn't understand what he said, not because I didn't really understand the individual words, but because it caught me so off guard that a ticket guy is offering me a poster. It just didn't register. So I kind of like stared at him for a while and then, you know, said just one will be fine. And so we got a uh, poster that is kind of a, it's a poster of the entire series. Yeah, it's a a mashup of all the movies, including the latest one. It's, of course, it does say AMC theaters at the bottom, but it is. It's it's really awesome, and it's definitely going up in my room with one of the tickets next to it. Another fun thing was after the film, we got out, and we're walking down the, the corridor, and there was a man behind us with a, a young boy, and then we heard the, the, the father say, look, she's got a fedora, or, or Indy's hat, or yeah, something. Yeah, he said, look, she's got Indy's hat, and like pointed me out to his kid, and his little kid looked at me like, Ooh. <laughs> yeah and uh so the, the whole experience was fabulous and i'm looking forward to more experiences like this with et and other films uh also one of my favorite films of all time lawrence of arabia i believe is getting one of these re-releases and we owe it all to digital technology because it's easier and cheaper for the studios to do digital releases of the classic films than uh, putting in all the money to making new prints and all that sort of stuff and shipping those around. And so uh, 
this, I hope, is opening up a big trend uh, that'll make it easier for people outside of gargantuan cities like L.A. or New York or something to see more of these older films on the big screen. Trek binges. I would love to do some long-term reviewing of Trek like this, but I don't have the time. But you do. At the beginning of my school's summer break, I felt like watching some Deep Space Nine. Of course, it was summer break, so my dad wasn't home to tell me what episode to watch that wouldn't give away any spoilers. Over the years, as I've introduced her to uh, Star Trek, I've shown her episodes throughout the various series, but I pick and choose so that they're episodes that stand alone nicely and that don't give away spoilers in some of the larger arcs that uh, some of the series carry. So I started with the first episode of the first season, and I just kept going. And going and going. And going, and going. <laughs> yep. Uh, because, of course, I have, I'm lucky enough to have an iPad, so I could, as long as there was Wi-Fi, I could just watch it. And never stop. <laughs> well, and this is, uh, as a slight aside, this is an interesting aspect of modern life that people now have basically instantaneous access to complete series all the time. Through Netflix and Hulu. And, and all that sort of stuff. And when I was a kid, first starting to watch Star Trek, well, you only had one series to begin with, but you watched it when it was on and there weren't any of these choices. So kids today, as I can say, being an old man, have this whole other uh, option available to them. Back to the uh, topic at hand, she was just binging through the entire series and I would get a phone call at work saying, oh, you know, such and such happened or I can't believe this happened. And I would both be amused by remembering whatever incident she was specifically talking about. And then he would go, oh, God, I can't watch that right now. Yeah, I wish I could <laughs> be watching it. But I would also be amused by the fact that the incident that she was talking to me about would be an incident like a season later than the last incident <laughs> she had brought up because she had already just blasted through another. Yeah, if, you know, I mean, I mean, if I was in the mood to just keep watching, I would just keep watching and find something to do with my hands and then just watch a season in half a week. It's an entirely different experience. Well, because the, the lines between the episodes are sort of blurred for me now. Because really all I had to do was touch the screen and start another episode. It really wasn't more than that. So I don't have really a memory of what episode It's, it's like one giant episode to you. Compared to, you know, people like myself who watched it when it was originally broadcast. You've got a week between regular episodes. <laughs> and uh, it's a different experience. You have time to sort of reflect upon the episode. You have time to recover from an episode that maybe was particularly emotional or sad. Yeah, or and of course, I would have moments where I'd be like, "No, I can't, I can't watch it anymore. Stop and watch something else, like the Officer Parks and Rec, that wasn't as serious and was more funny." And of course, then there's the whole season-ending cliffhanger kind of thing that is an entirely different experience as well. When you're watching it as it's originally broadcast, you have that three months where you're wondering what happened, how are they going to get out of this, what are they going to do. I think they're going to do this. No, I think they're going to do that. You know, the, the interwebs go uh, crazy with all the geeks arguing about uh, what's going to happen. And you develop a, an anticipation that you lose when you experience it in this, you know, one long streak. 
Well, I, I, I still had that moment where the tiny planet that is my heart went, Poo, and all the pieces sort of fell down into my <laughs> pelvis. And I was like, must watch this episode before I die. Yeah. and th- But then you were able to watch it then yeah, right away. Yeah, of course. I was able to watch it right away and didn't have three months of torture and steeping, agony. Yeah, in the torture. You know, I, so I, I think there are pros and cons to the different ways of experiencing the series. I think Deep Space Nine lends itself to it, particularly given what a serialized show it was. But I don't think it's the kind of thing that you have to say, well, it's it's not as good or, or you know, it's not the right way to watch it. It's not what they intended or whatever. I just think it's a it's it's different. You're allowed. It's fun. Yeah, you, you, it's one you, of those things where it's like, well, I have nothing to do. I have no homework. I have a few chores, but I have this time, so I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do this. I'm going to watch five episodes of DS9 and more in a row. <laughs> and uh, as the parent at the day job, you're just envious. You just wish that you could be <laughs> sitting there enjoying the thing all over again. Of I, course, of course, if something, if something more major happened, I would immediately call him and be like, oh, my God, what? My what? my favorite, and this is a uh, slight, you know, spoiler for someone who hasn't seen the show. Close your ears. But I'm going to say it anyway. My favorite was when I think actually this arrived in an email that said, "Well, first, first, I came running down the stairs at eleven o'clock at night, going, Odo found his planet,' and then I ran back up, sort of in a sleep daze. It, and she was so excited. Of course, and then that I was knew... the last episode I watched that night." And, of course, I knew what was coming. This happened a number of times where I would know, obviously, some tragedy that was upcoming. And I would have to not react when she told me something, when I knew that she would soon be crushed by a a, a, a turn of events in yeah, the show. Yeah, when I saw that, his face looked like, what, it's 11 o'clock at night. Are you, did you have some NyQuil or something? What's but wrong then, with <laughs> But then... The uh, So then the next day, I'm at work, and I get an email that says, Odo's people are jerks. The exact quote was, what? the other changelings are jerks. <laughs> Period. And that was all. Just, I was like, uh-uh. No. No more. I was so looking. Odo has always been my favorite. I was so looking forward to that. And then I just, I, I, yeah. I was, uh, I, it. I was very amused. But I mean, but sad. Obviously, I mean that's a, a great uh, aspect of the story on Deep Space Nine, and I say great uh, as far as great drama, not great because it's good. It's a horrible tragedy. You're so sad for him. Yeah, because... I had I had my iPad. And I stood up from my chair and was like pacing around and was watching it, and then it stopped, and I was like, no, no, no. When when the episode ended, and I like walked away. No, no, no. And talking to my cast. I was I was so entertained. By that uh, email, I immediately uh, shared it with friend of the show, Una McCormick, uh, and many of you listening know that she's written some fabulous uh, Deep Space Nine novels, and you know she's a huge Deep Space Nine fan, so I shared that with her uh, right away. And yes, some fabulous Doctor Who novels as well. And in fact, on a future episode, we will have her on to discuss all of that great stuff. But for now, Deep Space Nine, in the end, what was your feeling? It needed a few more episodes, really. I think that's fair. I think that um, over seven years, they developed so many story arcs, so many interesting things going on with the characters, that to wrap it all up in just that final episode was uh, tricky. And I also would have liked to have seen a little bit more. There were so many, I mean, really so many goodbyes in that episode. And... 
they all just seemed awkward and rushed. And this final sort of arc of the episodes was rushed as well. It just it it needed some more time. An interesting thing is that the writers and editors at the Star Trek line at Simon and Schuster picked up on a lot of the loose ends and went forward with them in the novel line. And Greta really called it on that. After she watched the episode, she was like listing off a bunch of stuff that she most uh, was uh, disappointed by or interested in, and every one of them was something that they had picked up in the novel line. After Deep Space Nine, you then uh, eventually picked Voyager as your next Star Trek binge. I actually started watching because the actress who played Captain Janeway was at a convention that we were at this summer. Of course, I didn't see her because at the time I hadn't seen any Voyager episodes. And of course, now I'm like, oh God, why? Why didn't I watch Voyager before? Well, and she was hard <laughs> to she was hard to see too because she was surrounded by fans the entire yeah. time we were there. Even when she was, we were near her table once when she was there and you couldn't you, see yeah, her. Yeah, you couldn't even see her. There are so many people. And theoretically, she should have had to walk past us to get into her room where she was doing some sort of big thing. And yet we didn't see her then. I think they have secret passageways in the walls. So you're a few seasons in now. What do you think of Voyager? It's great. It's it's really great. There's always, I mean, in every TV series, you're always going to have some fumbling with the characters. But just what they have and the interactions between them are just the best. I think it's a good show. It's been kind of a lightning rod. Both the character of Janeway and the show seems to have drawn some really much more divisive opinions than a lot of the other shows. So there is a fairly substantial vocal group of lovers of the show and just as equally vocal haters of the show. And I think the show had some structural problems, and I think there were a couple of the characters that the writers never really got a handle on how they wanted to use them throughout a seven-year arc. Overall, I enjoyed it, but... Haters gonna hate. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, that's all we have for this episode. Before we go, remember that Generations Geek is a part of the Chronic Rift Network, which broadcasts from a secret bunker deep beneath the Hudson River. Please give their other fine podcasts a listen at chronicrift.com. And, because I'm sure you don't already spend enough time online, please follow Generations Geek on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and check out our website at generationsgeek.com. Thanks for listening, and come back next time. No geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast. Thanks.